All right, thank you. Thank you. So we will be tackling this topic today. It's a, it's a tough one, but we do have to lay some groundwork from verses 15 through 20 first before we get to the parable with the story and the king and all of those things. So we see here Jesus is simply continuing his thought. Now, we have to remember that verse numbers and, and headings were not in the original scriptures. They were not what Jesus was not like, all right, and now we're going to turn to verse 17 and start. He was just talking. This is all one talk. And what we have seen from last week and the week before is that as Christians dealing with other Christians, we are called, we are commanded to give up our rights to be willing to put others first and put ourselves last so that the greater good may be served. And then he, he talks about how some people go astray from that. And when one sheep goes astray, our God is so loving, so merciful, and so gracious that he goes after the one sheep, leaving the 99 so that he can then bring the one sheep back to the 99 to belong again. And then we see him seamlessly go into what we just heard my beautiful wife Stephanie read this morning. We are to mirror this in our daily lives. And Jesus is basically saying... I just told you that some sheep go astray. One way they do that many times is by offending other sheep. That is many times how they go astray, but we have to go after the one sheep. We can't just let them go astray. Even after that one sheep has gone astray by offending other sheep that they should not offend, that they should put their needs below we must go after them. We must welcome them back into the fold. And this is how we address it when it happens. This is how we approach it when it happens. So we read here, we're going to break down the first sentence uh, almost word for word. And then we will move quickly through the, the rest of verses 15 through 20. But we read in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go. First thing we need to realize that this passage specifically says... If your brother, meaning your brother and sister in Christ. This is not necessarily your biological family. They could be included in this, obviously. But this is the blood-bought church. The blood-bought citizenship of the church. The brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus is talking about here. This does not mean when Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street offend you that this is the process you go through because they ain't going to care. They're not going to uh, respond to this process because they are not under the lordship of Christ and they are not uh, under the authority of Scripture. So they in no way would be required or inclined to respond the way that Scripture tells us. This is not how we approach non-believers. Unsaved sinners are going to act like unsaved sinners. We have to be aware of that. We have to expect that. That's not that we are okay with them sinning. We just don't approach it this way. I do think the Bible addresses how you approach an unbelieving world in today's society. I just don't think it is in this passage. So we have to understand first that it is if your brother or sister, if your brother or sister in Christ offends you or, or sins against you, this is the process we must go through. So the first step is understanding that that's who he's talking about. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, it says when your brother, what? Sins against you. 
We have to get a right understanding here. This does not include when you're just all up in your feels and you get offended because somebody said something a little off color and they stepped over the line and they, they shouldn't have said that. This is when someone egregiously sins against you. Ladies, this is not when your husband can't read your mind. We've told you time and time again, we don't know what's going on in here. We definitely don't know what's going on in there. Husbands, this is not when your wife asks you to do something you don't want to do. That is not sinful, and it does not get approached this way. Get up off the couch, turn the game off, I'm talking to myself, and go do what you need to do. Sports are... Anyway. So, this, <laughs> this is not personal preference here. This is not hurt feelings. This is a major distinction here. It is, it is a sin that requires repentance, that requires change, that requires forgiveness from the person that has been offended or sinned against. Again, it is not just hurt feelings. It is not just because you had a bad day that day and you, you, you happened to get offended by something that you normally wouldn't get offended by. Peter uses the same language when it's in verse 21 when he asked Jesus the question that we will go over here in a few minutes. He uses the word sin. It's not some small thing. I'm not saying you can't address small things. But we don't have, that's not what it's talking about here. That's all I want you to realize is we have to take this in context. Okay, so what does it say? Brother, covered that sin against us covered that as well and then it says against you why is this important some translations actually take this part out the ESV leaves it in and I think that is accurate it says that it sins against you this is key to our understanding of when we address something this is not hearsay this is not I heard so-and-so talking about you behind the bleachers after the football game on Friday and this is what she said and I'm coming to tell you so that you and her can... That's not... It is when someone... When you have first-hand knowledge, not something you've heard from someone, someone, someone. This is when you have first-hand knowledge of someone sinning and it eliminates the he said, she said out of the whole bunch because it is one person to one person speaking to one another and they both have intimate knowledge of the situation. This is when someone is supposed to be, as we talked about in the past couple weeks, putting your needs ahead of their needs putting your wants ahead of their wants. This is when someone is supposed to be giving up their individual rights so that the betterment of the church, the betterment of the flock, the betterment of the other sheep can go forward. And this is when they have put themselves first and become sinfully selfish. This is when we approach it, not when we just hear that someone may be doing something possibly. There's a key distinction that must be made. This eliminates the possibility of getting lost in translation because you go directly to that person. It is not misconstrued. Any miscommunications that may have occurred can be taken up, but we struggle together as family. We go to that person, even when it's uncomfortable, and we ask them and we try to come to a resolution. Married people in here. I thought about, if, if I didn't have to preach next week all about divorce and mar marriage, I would have probably geared this much towards married people because as we will talk about next week, the person you have to forgive most in your life is the person that you are married to. We are called to that, but we will cover that next week. But as a married person in here, or as someone who isn't married, who hangs out with other people that are married, you ever hung out with another couple that you're not exactly used to? 
And you, you're sitting there at the dinner table and they start talking back and forth and picking at each other and joking. And then you start looking at your husband or your wife and having that conversation that you're not saying words, but you're like, are they really, are they, are they okay? That, do we need to, do we need to tag in here and do something? Because they, they, I don't, are they really mad or are they, I, I don't, do you want to just go? Let's go. I've told this story to both of them. So them not being here, it'll be okay. When I start, first started getting to know Eric, uh, Pastor Eric, sorry, is I wasn't married. I was dating my wife. I was not married. I started hanging out with him. He was discipling me at his house a lot of the time. Laura was always around. And if the people in this room that do know them will completely understand this story. But that, man, they go at it with each other sometimes. And at first, when I first started hanging out, and I've told them this many times, I was sitting there thinking, man, it's a good thing I'm here. Because at least it's toned down a little bit because I'm a witness and I don't, know what, I don't know what's about to happen here, but it's a good thing I'm sitting in the kitchen. Turns out that that's just how they are, and they were actually never actually mad at each other. But Eric and I say something all the time, that nothing is stranger than another man's marriage. Because every marriage has its own quirks and picadillos and things that they get that nobody else gets. And they do things that I would never do that with my husband or wife. I would never say that to my husband or wife. But what if I had taken this verse out of context and started beating Eric and Laura over the head with Matthew 18? Not understanding that this is their relationship. And now I fully understand that that is their relationship. And I would never say anything to them when they are, when they are doing that. Because I know them well enough now that I could say something. But I realize that I don't need to. But what if I had taken this verse out of context? It is firsthand knowledge of something. It is firsthand sin issues that you have to do. You must seek reconciliation for yourselves so that you can reconcile to your brothers and sisters. We speak respectfully when someone wrongs us. It's not hearsay. And when it is a sin issue, it must be resolved. We cannot just allow the sin to infiltrate the church. Laxity will cause, cause lapse, lapses. And many times when we relax these things is when sin creeps in, church splits happen, people get divorced, people hate each other, never speak again. And that is what Jesus is telling us we have to guard against. And this does not mean that there is never a time that we take up for others. Jesus was very clear here that God is very protective over his children and that we should be also, that we protect the flock. Pastors are specifically called to protect the flock from wolves. So this is in no way keep your mouth shut and let it all go and just go with the flow. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Of course we have to be willing to call sin what it is. Of course when someone is claiming Christ and publicly shaming Christ by their actions, sometimes we have to address that. Again, that's just simply not what is being talked about here. That's other parts of scripture that we, if we were preaching those verses, this would be a different message. This is when someone has sinned against you and reconciliation is needed, when, when repentance is needed, when forgiveness is needed. This is family business. Now, there may be times where we need to go have a conversation with someone, and that's fine. We don't have to go through this whole process because it's not a sin issue. It's simply a misunderstanding. That is okay. Again, that does not mean we just have to let everything go that gets on our nerves. We can have conversations, but we don't go through this entire process expecting them to repent and change and then possibly be disciplined by the church. Those are different things. This is when family has wronged family 
and the family needs to be restored. And what is the next word there? So if your brother sins against you, so if, if your brother, someone you're in relationship with in the body of Christ, does something that is wrong, biblically speaking, against you, meaning you have firsthand knowledge of it, what is the next word? Go. G-O. Not G-O-S-S-I-P. It's gossip. In case some of y'all went to county schools. I'm just kidding. So when these criteria are met, when a brother or sister sins against you and you must go to them and attempt to work it out, attempt to reconcile. Unfortunately, we all know in Southern Baptist land that this is not always how it's handled. Many times we take this verse, if we were to read it as we act, it would say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell all the people around them. Hopefully they will tell that person and they'll get the picture and stop getting on my nerves. I won't approach the person that's doing it, the person that has wronged me, the person that is sinning. That might get uncomfortable, but I can sure tell all their friends and all the people in the church. And in a church this small, everybody's going to know anyway. And that's when sin will creep in and rear its ugly head. And the devil will use that to split people and to cause people to, to hate each other or dislike each other. That's why we must be so adamant about this. The other way in Southern Baptist land, I'm, I guarantee you almost, if y'all have grown up in church, you have all been that, at the small group where somebody offers the prayer request for somebody else when they just want to gossip about them as they're giving the prayer. We really need to pray for Susie. She's been a real jerk lately and no one likes her. And I'm afraid that all of her friends are going to stop being her friends because she's just so mean and, and she's... But we just really need to pray for her. We just really, you know, she just needs our prayer, guys. It's probably because her husband is, you know, bought a boat the other day without asking her. And I, I don't know, she, he's kind of talking to this girl a lot. But then it just becomes gossip, 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 right? And then we say at the very end, right, to save it all, we just really need to pray for her. Instead of going to that person and approaching them and saying, hey... This is what I see. Can you explain this to me? Can you help me to, to understand this better? We must be willing to go to them as Galatians 6.1 says, says to go. Go humbly, remembering your own sin. Remembering that you are easily tempted to do these things as well. That you have sinned against others. Remembering that this is not a one-way street of let's just talk about this person. We must go to them and be willing to ask them questions and not just shoot accusations at them. Hey, you did this. Ask them questions. Clarify. Don't jump to conclusions and assume intentions. I have a saying that I always try to remember in, in moments when things don't go according to my plan. It's not in Scripture. This is not thus saith the Lord. But we seem to judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. So someone cuts us off in traffic. They don't use their blinker. We, what do we say? Oh, that person, gosh, what a horrible driver. I can't believe they would do that. Thanks, thanks, buddy. I'll wait, no problem. All of these things, right? We don't take into any account what may be going on in their life or that they may be a great driver that just made one mistake. Let us be the one that cuts somebody off in traffic without using their blinker, though. And what do we do in our head? Oh, man, I didn't see them. I, I, didn't, I don't normally do that. I normally use my blinker. Someone wrongs you. You assume they did it on purpose. But when you wrong someone, that's not what I meant. 
That's not what I meant to say. We start justifying ourselves by our intentions, but we don't allow someone else to justify themselves by their intentions. Take note in Genesis of how God approached Adam when he had sinned. God did not come thundering out of the clouds with a finger pointed at Adam. Look what you did. You've ruined everything. He came to him and asked him questions. Adam, where are you? Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, who told you you were naked? And God knew the whole story. God always knows the whole story. We probably never really know the whole story, and we assume to. God does know the whole story and allows Adam a chance to enter into dialogue. Once the sin is uncovered, then God deals with the sin. So this is what God is calling us to in this text. Humbly and respectfully being willing to be uncomfortable with family so that we can be reconciled to one another. We cannot gloss over the second half of verse 15. What does it say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So we've covered all of that. Between you and him alone... So we don't take a big group of people yet. We don't take a, anyone. We go to that person and that person only and speak to them. And then it says, he, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is the goal. This is what we have to have as our motivation. This is not righteous retribution. This is not punitive the goal of this is to gain your brother so that they can repent and be welcomed back just as the sheep that has gone astray. The one and only goal in this is to glorify God in the way that we handle disagreements and sin issues by forgiving and welcoming that person back, gaining our brother, reconciling to our brother or sister. That is the goal of this. Too many times, too, too, too many times, we just want to win. We want to be right we want someone to make it up to us or we want to look at them and say, I told you so. With no motivation to reconcile. We're not going to them with the goal of reconciliation or for them to even repent because many times they do repent and we don't accept their apology. It wasn't heartfelt enough. I don't even know what that means. I don't know if they meant it. They were just doing it because I approached them. Probably because maybe they didn't realize what they were doing and yet when you drew it to their attention they repented and yet too many times we just want the I told you so motive. This cannot be our motive. Our motive must be reconciliation. We mirror Christ in this way. We mirror Christ when we, just like him, are concerned with each and every individual sheep. Each and every person that we are in relationship with that claims Christ, we must be willing to go to them and call them and give them a clear opportunity to repent, a clear opportunity to turn away from sin. And our hope is that they do. We must go to them and give them this opportunity. Our goal is for that relationship to be restored our goal is for that to be sanctifying for both of us. The, the person who has offended and the person that has been offended, it can, it can and will be sanctifying for them both to go through this process. And maybe that person will be thankful that you love them enough to go through that uncomfortable situation. It is not unloving to call sin, sin. It is unloving to allow someone to continue down the path of sin and not tell them because sometimes they're doing it on purpose and other times they just don't realize what they are doing. 
And for us to say, well, I'm going to love that person just the way they are and let them continue sinning is not tolerant, biblical tolerance, and it's not loving to allow that person. The rest of this section lays out what to do next if they don't repent upon the first meeting. You take a couple of brothers or sisters with you, you help them understand, but again, the principle remains the same. Reconciliation. It is hoping that the sheep that has gone astray will be welcomed back into the fold. And then if they refuse yet again, you get a pastor and the church involved. This does not necessarily mean the entire church and that every person has to know. This is a group of leadership. This is a group of people with some form of authority over that person. This is a group of people that can go to them, pray for them, and again, the same principle remains. That the sin issue will be uncovered and that the person will repent and be welcomed back into the fold. That has to be the motivation through all three of these steps. If it's not, then you are the one sinning against your brother and you are the one that needs to go through the steps. Then the last verse in this section uh, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Many people say that on Sundays like today when a lot of people are on vacation. That's not what this means. This is one of the most, it's not misquoted, people say it right, but it's taken completely out of context. It is not referring to Sundays where people are out of town. It's definitely not referring to when you get your boys over to play poker and drink beer and call that church because we're all Christians and we talk about Jesus a couple minutes. Context is key here. What it is saying here is that your mo if, if your motivation is reconciliation to your brother or sister, I, Jesus, am always with you. I am always on board for reconciliation to your brother or sister in Christ. I will never be against that because that is what I am about. I am about reconciling people and reconciling people to God, that is what I am about. So when two or three of you go to a brother calling them to repentance and calling them to reconciliation, I am with you, always with you. I will never leave that up to you on your own. But what is going to bring about reconciliation that is free and genuine, true reconciliation, the other side of that takes forgiveness. We cannot stand upon our rights and hold on to what should have happened. Well, you shouldn't have done that. Okay, we've, we've covered that. What do you want from me? How do I make this up to you other than saying I'm sorry and repenting and changing and turning and doing things differently from henceforth? But if we are unwilling to forgive someone who is truly repenting, and they are gen then we are not genuinely seeking re reconciliation. It takes humility to do this. And that humility must lead to forgiveness can only imagine, even in a group this size, how much resentment and unforgiveness that we may harbor in our hearts, even right now as I'm speaking. And maybe I just assume that because I have so much that was uncovered this week. And I thought I was a pretty happy-go-lucky, love-everybody kind of guy. And yet, I've been convicted so I assume that there are other people in the room that are also going through this, that are also thinking of someone specific right now that you are like, man, didn't necessarily handle that correctly. But just think what a picture of the gospel the church would be if our default mechanism in all of our dealings was forgiveness. 
That was our baseline. That is what we went in assuming. What if, what if, how great would our relationships look if forgiveness could be assumed? That you wouldn't have to be talked into forgiveness. You would have to be talked out of forgiveness because you were so forgiving and you wanted to forgive so much. What would our churches look like and what light would that shine to a world that is not good at this? And I know what you're thinking. Maybe I don't. But you might be thinking, but then people can walk all over me. If I'm so forgiving and they assume forgiveness, they can take advantage of me. They can make life harder for me because I am always the one forgiving, which is never true, but I'm always the one forgiving. And they're just going to keep taking and keep taking and keep taking. And my first response to that is, how did Jesus handle that? How did Jesus respond to that? Forgive them for they know not what they do, right? He never once spoke back to them in a retributive, punitive way. He was always assuming and wanting forgiveness. He was always going after the sheep that has gone astray. So maybe that's true. Maybe people will take advantage of you. And what I have to say to that is, suck it up, buttercup. I don't know. I don't, that wasn't in my notes, but I, I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> It, it's, it may happen, and we have to continue in this principle. That doesn't mean we open the door for them to do so, but we have to continually forgive and continually forgive. Secondly, as a response to that question, though, is I present to you the Apostle Peter, who always has the question that we all want the answer to, and we're all unwilling to ask it ourselves. If we had been there I probably would have been the Peter and then been like, oh, shouldn't have said that one. Sorry, can I take those back? But a lot of people want to know what Peter is asking, right? So Peter, in verse 21, he speaks up, and what does he say? All right, Jesus, I get it. We must always be pursuing reconciliation. We must always be pursuing this lost, gone astray sheep. We must always be trying to reconcile. But then he, then he asks a very poignant question. But how many times we got to do that? Because this seems tough. How many times? And then he throws out a number. and I, Seven seems incredibly generous to me. If you, I mean, fool me once, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. It doesn't even leave room for number three, does it? And Peter is saying seven times? He was being, he was being extremely generous. You see, Jewish law, based on a few scriptures in Job and in Amos, Jewish rabbinic law that all Jewish people would have followed says you have to forgive someone three times. Upon the fourth time, you can either retaliate or cut them completely out of your life. So three times, but on the fourth one, all's fair in love and war. Do whatever you got to do. So Peter was being generous. Goody two-shoes Jewish boy Peter was saying, all right, Jesus. And then he had probably looked around at his other disciples like, watch this. So Jewish law says three times. How many times do we have to do it? Seven? Seven times, Jesus? That's so many, Jesus. How many times? That's more than twice the amount that I have to do it. I'm doubling it up, Jesus. Aren't you impressed? And it's a valid question. Peter is speaking for all of us here. We all want to know how many times. Because... 
There are people in my life I'm thinking of. How many times? What is the bare minimum I have to do? What is allowed in this area before I take action, before I disconnect, before I do whatever that you want to do in this situation? How many of you right now can replay an argument that you've had with someone? Doesn't have to be anyone specific. Or we're not going to name names at least out loud. But you can replay word for word every moment of that argument. And every time you remember it, you get mad at the end of remembering it because you're like, man, if I'd said this, I would have totally won that argument because there would have been no coming back from that. They would have said this and I would have said this and then I would have said this and they would have said this and then kibosh. Would have been like George Costanza. Most of you aren't going to get this reference. Driving down the road, he thinks of an insult he should have said at the office and he turns it back around, right, and goes back. It always backfires. Anyway, he delivers the line and the guy has a better comeback. But anyway, that's Seinfeld, beside the point. But we all have this, right? We all remember those times where we're like, man, if I, oh boy. Next time, next time. You just wait. It's because we're not good at forgiving people. We're not really good at letting things go as human beings. It is difficult. It is costly. It is uncomfortable. It is unnatural. And yet all of us, every person in this room, I can say this without question, every single person in this room wants unlimited forgiveness shown to them. When we wrong others, we want to assume forgiveness. We want to be entitled to forgiveness. We want to expect forgiveness. Hey, man, that's not me, right? That's the things we say. That's not me. Well, then who was it? Because it looked like you. Who was it then? Because I'm pretty sure it was you that called me and told me that. Or I'm pretty sure it was you that did this wrong to me, that sinned against me. Ah, yeah, but you know me. That's not how I normally act. We want to justify and expect unlimited forgiveness directed towards us, but we don't want it directed away from us. The thing we have to realize, though, is that this is not optional. It is not a suggestion. It's not if it feels right, do it this way. This is Jesus' words. It is not limited. It is not contingent upon how sorry someone appears to be. It is not contingent upon how many times they've had to forgive you. Because that's what we all want to justify, right? Well, I've forgiven him two, three, four times, but he's never had to do that for me. Maybe they just haven't told you. It's not about the number. Jesus is not giving us a a number here. He is giving us a principle. I know all of you, I, I see some of you calculating. Well, I'm at 72 with Joe. It means I got five more. Jesus said 77, five more, and I'm out of this relationship because he has just wronged me too many times. Jesus is not giving us a number here. He's giving us a principle. In Luke, the number is 70 times seven. The Greek is a little fuzzy there, so they, they don't know exactly. And it, to me, it doesn't matter what the number is because Jesus is saying it has to be unlimited. It is that you have been extravagantly forgiven. You must extravagantly forgive. He is giving us a principle of how we must forgive because of the way we have been forgiven. And to drive this principle home, Jesus tells his disciples the parable that we read earlier. So he tells them that forgiveness from God is like that of a king who is settling his accounts and he realized that one of his servants owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, I have no idea what that means. I guess I'll just read that as 10,000 dollars. 
which is fine because for most of us and most of the people we know, $10,000 would be a lot of money. I don't know anyone in this room that's just like, man, I don't care. Here's 10 grand, whatever. But that's how we read it. But what we have to realize is Jesus was driving home a much bigger point here. The talent was the biggest unit of money they had available to them at the time. That was the top of the line. A talent, it was really a weight of money. So it could be gold, silver, whatever precious metal you want to put in the blank. It just had to weigh a certain amount and become a talent. 10,000 was the biggest number they had to use at the time. Now, Jesus has infinite knowledge. He could have said 10 bajillion, but the disciples wouldn't have known what that meant. 10,000 was the largest number they had at their disposal. So to put this into perspective, if you take a daily rate of average of what people made back then and a daily rate of what people make now, Jesus is saying here that 10,000 talents it would have measured out to be about $6 billion in today's money. Yeah, I said billion. That's a B, not an M. $6 billion. Now, if there's anyone in here that wants to give away ten grand, write the check to me. I don't know anyone that wants to give away $6 billion. That is a lot of money for anyone. Jesus is saying that his debt was incalculable. It was unpayable. It was never going to be paid because it is entirely too much money. So the servant did the only thing that, that he could have done at that time. He laid prostrate on the ground. He begged for mercy. He begged for more time and for more patience from the king. He said, give me time and I will pay back this whole debt. Now, a day's wage during that time was roughly one denarii. He owed the king 60 million denarii. That's how much would have equaled 10,000 talents. So dividing that number by 365 mathematicians, it would have taken him about 162,000 years to pay back that debt. Life expectancy was around 50 back then. You do the math. Let's say he made double that amount, made two denarii a day. That's still 82,000 years. Let's just say it was unpayable. There is no way this man was going to pay back this debt. And yet, what did he tell the king? If you give me time, I will pay back the entire debt. Even though everyone in the room knew, no, you're not. That is impossible. There's no way you could ever pay back that debt. So what does the king do? How does he respond? It was perfectly within the king's rights to kill this man. It was perfectly within the king's right to sell him and his entire family into slavery. Not because that would have equaled $6 billion dollars but because it would have been punitive and he would have got something out of the deal instead of nothing. And yet, the king lavishly and freely forgives the entire debt. In verse 27, he releases him from his debt. And it must be noted here that he did so with no contingency whatsoever, no qualifications whatsoever, no fine print whatsoever. There were no strings attached. He simply looked at this man and said, be free. Go live freely. You owe me nothing. The servant didn't even ask for that, did he? He told him he'd pay it all back. He just asked for more time. And the king went above and beyond and extravagantly and lavishly removed the stain of his debt from him completely. It was finished. It was done. It was no more. If the story ended there, we would still get the point. We have been lavishly forgiven. But there's more. He goes on to say that very same servant went from that place. He had just given back, had been given back his life. That was his life that was going to be taken from him because he owed so much money. He was given that back 
He went out and ran into a fellow servant, someone on his same level that owed him money. He seized him and began strangling him. And what was he owed? A hundred denarii. He was just forgiven 60 million of them bad boys. 60 million denarii he was forgiven. And he was owed a hundred, roughly $1,500 in today's money. It was perfectly within his rights to ask for this payment. He was owed. The man never denied that he owed him the money. He said, yes, I owe you the money. And then what did he say? Exactly the same words that this man just said to the king. He fell down prostrate before him and he said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. That is the exact same wordage. A denarii, again, was a day's wage. This man could have paid him back in three and a half months. And instead... He refuses and throws him into jail. Now, one other thing to remember here, this man did not need the hundred denarii to pay back the king. His debt had been forgiven. It was done. There was no contingency there. There was no, okay, the debt's clear, but you better bring me every dime you ever make. It was clear. It was done, forgiven. The debt was gone. This man did not need this money to maintain his debt forgiveness. He was just greedy and he was standing stubbornly on his own rights. Other servants saw this, went and told the king. Wish I could have heard that conversation. We don't have it here. They tell the king, he summons the original servant back to him, and he tells him that because he did not pay forward the forgiveness that he was shown, that his debt would be reinstated, and that he would spend however long it took him in jail to pay it back again, about 165,000 years. I guess he's still there. There was, there was no mercy anymore to be given to this man but we got to take note one more time because we just read through this and we just say okay well he was thrown in thrown into jail he was not thrown into jail because he couldn't pay his debt that was forgiven it was done that was not why he was being punished he was being punished because he failed to forgive after he had been forgiven his debt the punishment was because he did not mirror the magnanimous grace that he was shown from the king he refused to exhibit the mercy that he had just been shown. And then Jesus says some really haunting words to us at the end of this parable when he says, unless we mirror this grace, that his heavenly father will do the same thing that this king did and punish us. We owe a great debt, but that will not be what the punishment is for. The punishment will not be for us not paying back our debt. We can't do that. It will be because we do not show the same grace that we have been shown. And I know what you're thinking right now. Hold on, Pastor. I thought our forgiveness was set in stone at the cross. I thought our forgiveness was free and un unchanging. I thought we don't have to do anything to maintain our forgiveness. And that is 100% true. We don't. I don't want anyone to leave here thinking, Pastor Justin told us to maintain our forgiveness. This is what we have to do. Jesus is saying here, though, if you are unwilling to show the same forgiveness to your fellow man, maybe your sins aren't forgiven after all. Maybe you haven't experienced it. Our forgiveness is paid by a once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus. Our account is stamped, paid in full. There is nothing that can remove that stamp. But if we refuse to mirror the grace, then maybe we never received that stamp. Maybe we've never been truly forgiven by Christ because we have not put our faith 
put our trust and faith in him and his sacrifice and then because of that grace gone and shown others this same grace a forgiven heart is a forgiving heart must remember that I would love to give credit to whoever said that first but I couldn't find who said it I didn't come up with it a forgiven heart is a forgiving heart we cannot claim to be forgiven under the payment rendered by Jesus on the cross if we are still holding grudges and unwilling to offer that same forgiveness. We forgive, listen to the wordage here, we forgive others because we have been forgiven, not so that we will be forgiven. We have to get the order correct. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying if you don't forgive, then I won't forgive you. He's saying, if you don't forgive, maybe I haven't forgiven you. It's a completely different order. He's, he's saying here that forgiving in an unlimited fashion with no strings attached whatsoever, no small print, no qualifications, no contingency plans, nothing. This is key in acting in the character of God because that is the character of God, to forgive and forgive wholly and truly. That's why he adds the words, from your heart. If you do not forgive from your heart, don't just pay it lip service. Don't just say, okay, you're forgiven, but they're not. You still got it right here, and next time you argue, bringing that bad boy up. Married people, don't keep a list. If you say someone's forgiven, they need to be forgiven because that is the character of God. Just as every passage in Scripture says not about us, it's not about our forgiving. It is about Jesus. It is about the lavish, extravagant forgiveness of God found only in the cross of Christ where Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sins with no qualifiers, with no stipulations, with nothing so that we can go forgive others in his name with no qualifiers and no stipulations whatsoever. Bo Hughes is a pastor in Texas and he puts it this way. I listen to his podcast quite often, highly recommend it. When a person truly grasps in their heart how much they have been freely forgiven by God at great cost to himself, it compels them to freely forgive others even at great cost to themselves. We mirror this in our lives even at great cost to ourselves because no one has paid a greater cost than Jesus. So if we are unwilling to do so, the question has to be asked, have you experienced this forgiveness? Are you forgiven? Have you truly turned your life over to Jesus? If you are unwilling to mirror, this doesn't mean forgiveness won't be hard and you'll struggle with it and may take time. It doesn't mean we just say you're forgiven. It may take time to forgive someone, but if you are unwilling to even begin the process, if you are unwilling to even possibly forgive that person, you have to ask the question if you've experienced forgiveness yourself. He's telling us here that the words of Jesus are going to stand in stark contrast to the world. The words of Jesus are going to buck against our natural inclinations. This is not what we want to do naturally. The words of Jesus are going to make you do things differently. They are going to make you uncomfortable. But the words of Jesus are what we have to live by. We must live by these words and not our sinful desires, not our feelings, and not our emotions. We must learn from and lean on Jesus' ability to forgive with no fine print attached, with no catches. We must learn from and lean on the realization that we have already been forgiven, so we must forgive 
out of that abundance. When we realize how undeserving of this forgiveness that we are, it will not matter how deserving someone is of your forgiveness. We look at people and say, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. All of us are that bad, and we have been forgiven by an almighty, infinite, perfect, holy God, and we're out here trying to get retribution for the smallest of inconveniences. We have been forgiven six billion dollars, and God's just asking us to let go of 1,500. May we read this story, and as always, may we understand where we fit into the story, and that is that we are the wicked, undeserving, unforgiving servant forgiven so much and yet may we go from this place unlike him and be willing to forgive unabashedly forgive so that the glory of Christ may be shown not so that we can be forgiven may we go from this place and forgive because we have been forgiven through the death the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we are already forgiven if we are in him. Our debt is already paid in full. And there's nothing that can reinstate that. But, it, but you have to ask the question, if I'm unwilling to forgive, have I truly been forgiven? So as we pray this morning, may we thank Jesus for his unqualified, his, his no-catches forgiveness on our lives. May we put our faith and trust in him from this moment and may we mirror that to a lost and dying world. Pray with me.